Kent mentioned um, lots of ways to worship. We don't think about it with the teaching uh, typically, but uh, hopefully the uh, time of teaching feels like worship too. You guys remember that worship is at its fundamental element. It's bowing before God. So when we are taking in God's Word and where we're bringing an attitude that, Lord, we want to hear Your Word and do it, that is an element. That's an important aspect of worship. So when we sing, that's good. That's worship. We're declaring those things true of God. But when we're taking in God's Word with that attitude of, Lord, we want to humble ourselves. We want to hear what You say is important and follow that. That's an attitude of worship as well. So I hope, hope you, we feel the good of that. Also, how many ladies were here yesterday for the women's con? Wow, great. Great time, right, Deneen? I think Deneen said it was the best one yet, maybe. For me? Yeah. Maybe I just needed it worse. Yeah, no. Good, good time. So, ladies, I hope you were there. We're eating leftovers from yesterday at our house. I know that. My goodness. Anyway, <clears throat> guys, we're going to talk about something... Kind of oddly, shouldn't be, but for many of us, uh, is uncomfortable, maybe at least on the outset. You know, if you talk to Christians uh, about giving, you notice Christians' eyes, sometimes they, they go like this, and they look at the floor, or when you talk about prayer, it's often the same thing. If I say to you, how's your prayer life? And you this, and, because it, it's something that... It, we tend to see it as something we're supposed to do and we don't do it enough, we don't do it right, so when you bring this up, it brings us thoughts of guilt. Uh, if you're convicted this morning, I'm all for it, but I don't want to ladle on any guilt, okay? But we're going to talk about prayer and <clears throat> it's not, a, it's not a, a topical sermon on prayer. We're going to come at prayer from the angle of the passage we're in this morning but you, you and I know prayer at the most fundamental level. It's just talking, right? It's conversation with God. So when we read the Scriptures, God talks to us. When we talk back to God, we call that prayer. And so it can be about anything and everything, right? And I want to say this on the front so that I've said it and so that I'm not, you don't think I'm minimizing this. If I've got anything that concerns me, I want to take that to God in prayer. If there's a, an issue for myself or for somebody else, no matter how small... I can talk to the Lord about that, and that's important because it's a relationship and it's conversation. But we're going to look at prayer this morning in what I might describe as a, a loftier sense or a more all-encompassing sense, or perhaps in a sense that at the end of the day is a kind of view of prayer or a way of praying or considering praying that we shouldn't be without. Okay, So not minimizing other aspects of prayer, but focusing on the way Paul prays, he describes his prayer in the text we're in this morning and saying we want to aspire to this kind of interaction with God as well. So that's where we're going. Chuck Swindoll said, too few Christians know how to pray, what to pray for, or why they're doing it. And again, that's sort of that guilt thing. I should pray, I'm not sure what that means, I'm not sure what that looks like. Some of us may feel that way too. So just ask yourself a couple questions on the front end. What is our prayer life like? What's my prayer life like? Do I feel, feel guilty when somebody brings up prayer? Do I have a sense I pray? I love interacting with the Lord verbally through prayer. Do we know what to pray for? And do we know why we're praying? Do we have a sense of all of this? If you want to learn how to pray, you know the best thing you can do? I'm not, I, and I'm not kidding. You want to, if you want to learn how to pray, you should read your Bible. 
This is not a trick question. Because if you want to learn how to pray, you read your Bible and you read the prayers in the Bible. And you know what you find? The prayers in the Bible are the Bible. When people pray in the Bible, they pray the Bible. I'm serious, absolutely serious. Some of you went through a year through the Bible with me a few years ago. We marked all the prayers in the Bible, and you know what you find? The prayers in the Bible are people praying back to God what God has already said. And that's part of what you see this morning. Before we get to Ephesians 1, and that's where we'll park, if you want to, you can turn 1 Kings 3, verses 3 through 9 in the Pew Bible, it's uh, page 282. It's another great example of prayer. And as you'll see, it meshes very nicely with the kind of prayer Paul describes in Ephesians 1. But the setup was this. Young King Solomon has just assumed the throne. It's within at least the first three years, might be sooner than that. So he's young, he's inexperienced, he's the new kid on the block regionally, he's the king now over Israel. David, who's a legend in Israel, is gone. He's, he's young, and if you read David's instructions to Solomon, he says, you're a young guy. I mean, he's coming on feeling the lack. So he goes up to Gibeon to worship. And while he's there, asleep at night, Yahweh, God, shows up. And he says to Solomon in his dream, what can I do for you? Son, what do you want? If you ask for anything, what would you like me to give you? So, Solomon replies. Now, he doesn't doesn't answer the question right away. First, he gives God's thanks for two things. And the first thing he says is this. He says, Lord, as I look back on the life of my father David... I am so thankful for the mercy and the faithfulness and the loving kindness that you poured out past tense on my father. I look back and I know what kind of a God you are because I see your interaction with my dad, my father. I am so thankful for what you did for my father. Past tense. He then says, I'm also really thankful for this. I'm thankful that you answered my father's prayer that one of his sons would be on his throne. And in Solomon's case, it happens to be him. But this was looking back and saying to God, I am so thankful for what you've already done. And then he says this. He says, and Lord, this is the thing, to the request. He says, Lord, I am among your great people. And I am young, and I don't know how to go out and come in. And I am feeling the lack. And I don't know how to get on with life. And he said, so my request is that you would give me a wise and understanding heart, that you'd give me wisdom and knowledge adequate to know how to lead, to shepherd your people Israel. The people that you love, your covenant people that you value, I want to know how to lead them in your stead. What does that look like? And so God says this. He says, I'm going to give you what you asked for. I'm going to give you wisdom more than anybody else has ever had. And then he says, I'm going to give you what you didn't ask for. Because you didn't put yourself first in this prayer, you didn't ask for wealth or long life, you didn't ask for your enemies to be under your feet, because you didn't put yourself first, he says, I'm going to give you everything you didn't ask for. I'm going to give you wealth, I'm going to give you longevity, you're going to subdue people around you because you put me and my things first. Now that theme, that sounds like Matthew 6.33 to me, where God says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you'll put me and my things first, I'll take care of all those other things. And so Solomon, this is a great example for prayer. Solomon says before he makes any request, he says, God, I look back, I see what you've done, I know who you are, and so before I say anything, I thank you for what I already know is true. 
And then I make this request, and my request is for wisdom and knowledge adequate to lead the people you love. That's instructive. That's helpful. And that's sort of where we're going in Ephesians 1. So let me ask you this. If you could ask God for one thing for yourself, this is not a right or wrong question, by the way. If God showed up in your dream tonight, and he said, son or daughter, what would you like? <clears throat> what would you say? For yourself, what would you say? Or if he said, uh, I want to do something for someone you love or care about, what would you pray? Again, it's not right or wrong. It's just, where's our head? Where's our heart? God shows up. What do you want? What's there? What do we want? What might we pray? Prayer's a big topic, and we're not going to really, I said this is not a topical subject uh, message on prayer, because we're really going to go through the text to see how Paul prayed for his friends in Ephesus. And by the way, We'll jam in as much as we can. Uh, this is not that many verses, but guys, Ephesians is a really deep passage. It's a deep text. And so we're just going to hit highlights again. There's a lot of things we simply will not be able to cover. So you take home the one or two things that work for you, and we'll call it good, okay? So Pew Bibles, page 976. I'm reading from the ESV. This is Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. And we're just continuing on where we left off last time. Paul says, for this reason... For this reason means he's looking back to the first 14 verses of the epistle. He says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. If you look down later, you'll see he picks up hope, that Christian trinity of virtues, faith, hope, and love. You'll see in Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, and 1 Corinthians 13. Paul's pulling these Christian virtues together repeatedly. Faith, Hope and love, his prayers are often centered on, or his thoughts towards himself and the saints. Your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love toward the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, the knowledge of him. Sounds a little bit like Solomon. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And by the way, sorry to interrupt, but we won't cover this today, but rule, authority, power, and dominion, those are spiritual powers. These will come up again in chapter 6. These are demonic powers. These aren't angels, and this isn't people that you and I interact with. These are spiritual entities that Christ has been raised above. Uh, sorry, where am I? That he worked in Christ. Yeah, sorry, verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So guys, the first thing we're looking at is this. And this might go without saying, but we'll say it anyway. Verse 16, Paul says, Remembering you in my prayers. The first thing we want to note is simply that Paul was a praying guy. Prayer was part of the fabric of Paul's life. Paul prayed. He prayed often. He prayed always. And he prayed for others. And that's what you'll see. 
You have a study sheet, I hope. I'm just going to rattle a bunch of these off because I think it's helpful to hear them. But as I rattle these off, I won't give the references. You can look those up later. As I rattle these off, notice that, and by the way, you can do a search. If you do in a Bible app, just put P-R-A-Y with an asterisk and it'll put up pray, prayers, prayed, praying. You look how often this comes up in the New Testament. It's remarkable. But also notice how many of these references, these are in Paul's epistles, are to praying for others. It's not just that Paul prays. It's that he's routinely praying for others. So he says, you're always in my prayers. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them. A call to prayer, he says. Be constant in prayer. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Always in every prayer of mine for you. Be anxious about nothing. Another call to prayer. But pray about everything. Colossians 1, we have not ceased to pray for you. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers as we pray earnestly night and day that we may see you. Request for prayer, brothers, pray for us. To this end, we always pray for you. I mean, when you look at Paul's life through the epistles, what you see is this guy's praying all the time. Prayer is a way of life. It's not a discipline he exercises in the morning or the evening or three times a day. Think of Daniel. He's praying all the time. But characteristic of those prayers, his prayer life is he's praying for others all the time. You know, we put out a prayer calendar in this church every month. I don't know how many of those go in the wastebasket and how many of those end up on your coffee table. We put ours on the table with our Bible so when we sit down and pray in the morning, we go through each day, right? And we pray for each other in the church because you forget otherwise, right? Some of us use prayer lists where we're writing down we know specific needs. That's the thought here. Paul's not just praying. He's praying always for other people. That's his pattern of life. Pray for brothers and sisters in the faith. This is from Tim Keller. I love this quote. He says this, Prayer gives us relief from the, listen to this description, the melancholy burden of self-absorption. The melancholy burden of self-absorption. You'll find this, if our prayer lives are, God, please help me, God, please do this, God, I need, God, I want, friends, we would call that baby prayer, because it's all about me, right? For a baby's life, it's all about them, right? They need everything. Everybody focuses on them. When we pray like that, we're praying baby prayers. This is not mature prayers. Everything's about me. I'm the center of the universe. So all my prayers are about me. Guys, to to grow in the faith, to grow in maturity means we think about others. We love God first, and then we love our neighbor. So mature prayer means we're thinking about others in the faith and we're praying for them. Otherwise, it's, it's a baby faith represented by baby prayers. So Paul said he knew that these believers were living out their love for their brothers and sisters in the faith, love for the saints, And we should too. And one of the main ways he's doing that is simply by praying for them. Guys, we've said in our household, we would always say, in fact, one of my daughter's emails sign off with P-T-P-F. Past tense prayed for. Dad, you're prayed for. We said, I don't want to hear you say you will pray for me. I want to know you already did. So it's past tense prayed for. It's not a We throw it out, oh, I'll pray for you, and maybe I do, and maybe I don't. It's, you're prayed for, you're already prayed for. The second thing is this, and you'll see this is just like Solomon. 
just like Solomon, when Paul tells them about his prayers for them, he doesn't start with request. He starts with thanksgiving. So you'll see this in verse 15. When he says, for this reason, he's thinking back to the things he's already recited in verses 1 through 14. He says, you're already blessed with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. You're chosen, you're predestined, you're adopted. You're going to be transformed fully. He looks back at all those, and then he says in verse 16, I don't cease to give thanks for you. Just like Solomon, he says, I'm looking back at what God has already done for you. And when I think about what God has already done, I can't help but overflow with thanksgiving because what God has already done is crazy. So when I look back and I consider that, I give God thanks before I do anything else. Thanks is the first response to what God has done. When we think about other Christians, and Christians specifically, you know, one of the first things we can do, and it doesn't matter what kind of dire straits they might be in. You know, the worst among us, the worst lived life among us as a Christian here is pretty, pretty good, right? You, you could live in the Middle East today. You could be oppressed. You could be in prison. You could be starving, exposed to the illness. You name it. I mean, the worst life here is pretty good. No complaints there. Um, but when we think of other Christians here, do we with Paul think about what's true of them? What's true of them? So they're chosen. They're adopted. They've got God's spirit. They've got eternal life. Their sins are forgiven. Whatever happens in life, when we think about them, there's all these things that are true. <clears throat> and you know what happens too, by the way. When you thank God for what God's already done for them, do you know what happens to your appraisal of them in your own eyes? Just like that. It's like, wow, that's what God has done for them. I, I better rethink how I'm thinking about them. But also there's this, thanksgiving for what God has already done is one of the great antidotes to care and worry. You know, frankly, guys, we'll talk about power here in a little bit, but the big things in life, can you and I sort of wave a wand and make things better for ourselves or for others? We can't, right? When you recite and give thanks for those things that are already true, it, it relieves our heart of all kinds of care. Things we can't control, don't control. But when we give God thanks, it, it refocuses us, our mind on the things that are already true. A lot of things maybe we can't change, but these things are true. For us and for our brothers and sisters in the faith, that changes the way we see life for ourselves and for them. Think of this too. <clears throat> Let's see. So we're, we're the greatest generation in here. We're baby boomers. We're Gen Xers. We're millennials. And I can't remember what the next group, your youngest kids, I can't remember what generation they are. So let's just say you got five or six demographic generations here. What's going to happen to everyone in these generations? We're going to die. Like every other generation before us, right? And when you look in Scripture and it says, gosh, how long is your life? Well, it's like a shadow. It's like a vapor. It's like a blink. In the big, in the panoply of time, in the cosmos and all that's going on, you and I, you and I we're here for a, a brief moment, right? And then we're gone. So what's the most important thing? Is it the house I live in today? Is it the car I drive? In fact, is it how good my health is right now? Not even that, is it, right? Because we're all going to die, right? That's where we're going. Unless the Lord calls, I'm ready. I hope you are. 
If the Lord calls, we don't die. I'm good with that too. But life here is short. The only thing that ultimately matters is where am I going for eternity? Who am I spending eternity with? Who is mine? Who is mine? And whose am I? That's all that matters. So with that, we can give thanks. We are like the grass and the flowers of the fields that appear today and are gone tomorrow, right? We're just here for a short time, brief time, no matter how long we live. We're the latest generation. We're going to join everybody else. So as we consider our end and know that our sins are forgiven, that Jesus has died to save us, that the Spirit has stamped us as God's own, guys, that's what matters. When we're praying, these are the big picture prayers, right? This isn't merely life in the moment. We can pray about those things too. This is the big picture arena of prayer. So when we think about our brothers and sisters in the faith and what God has already done for them and for us, we could be doing, if not physical, spiritual backflips because we have so much to be thankful for, for what God's done for us. Think of Solomon, thankful for his, uh, God's faithfulness to David. Or think of today, the things that are true of our friends in the faith, brothers and sisters in the faith too. So Paul, when he tells them how he's praying, the first thing he says is, I'm just giving thanks to God because of what is already true of you. Then he gets, last thing, and this is where Paul parks, and this is where we want to park too, then he gets to the request. And you'll see that Paul's request for the Ephesians is remarkably like Solomon's request to God as well because it's for knowledge. When Paul prays for the Ephesians, he prays that they will know some things about God and some things that are true for them. Look at verse 17. finally gets to the request and he says this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom... That's what Solomon prayed for. The spirit of wisdom and of revelation in knowing him, in the knowledge of him. Verse 18 is a parallel thought. It emphasizes the same thing again. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So Paul says, when I pray for you, this is what I pray. I pray that you'll know some things. I pray that the eyes of your heart are open so that you know things personally for yourself. And he says at verse 18, for this reason, this is what I want you to know. I want you to know three things. What is the hope to which God has called you? Verse 18. Verse 18 again. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? So Paul says, when I think of you and I pray for you, I'm praying that you'll know some things. Now the Greek term there, we're not going deep in this, but the term is important. Epignosis means epinosis. Gnosis is knowledge. This specifically, by definition, and this is on your study sheet, is precise and correct knowledge, real knowledge, true knowledge. Knowledge directed towards a particular object, perceiving, discerning, recognizing. Concerned about God, Harold Honer puts it this way, it's not facts about God that are most important, but knowing Him personally and intimately. And that's epignosis, that's knowledge of a very personal nature. Now when we get to chapter 4, you see this great contrast when Paul goes to describe the lives of the folks who don't know Christ, do you know how he describes them? Ignorant, hardened, living in moral and spiritual darkness. It couldn't, there's light and there's darkness. There's day and there's night. That's how Paul describes the folks who are, know Christ through faith and those who don't. So here he's praying that they'll know something, that it will be personal and that it will be intimate. So God's work, this is important, and this is again, when we're thinking about prayer, pray about anything, 
But Paul says, when I pray for you, this is my prayer for you, that you'll know some things. Now, uh, language is pretty plastic, isn't it, oftentimes? We can use a term, and, and then you say, well, define your use of the term. What does that mean? So if I told, told you, if I told you that I know apple pie, and you say, well, how do you know apple pie? And I say, well, I've, I've seen a picture of it in a magazine, and I've read a recipe in a cookbook, and my friends have told me about apple pie and how delicious it is. And so I tell you, I know apple pie. And then you say, well, you really don't know apple pie. What you know, you know facts about apple pie, but you don't know apple pie. That's the difference in epignosis. Now, if you invite me to your house, my calendar's open, a cup of hot coffee and a piece of delicious apple pie, and I sit down and I look at it and I smell it, right? I smell the cinnamon and I smell the sweetness. I see the flaky crust. I put my fork in there. I take, as I do, big bites. It's a big piece. I stuff it in my mouth and I fill my mouth with the flavor of that apple pie. Do I now know apple pie? Now I know apple pie. You see, before I just knew facts about apple pie, but now I know personally by experience. Now I know apple pie. And friends, that's the trouble for many of us. We've seen a picture of apple pie and we think we know apple pie and we don't. When I was a young guy, and I, seriously, I had people ask me questions. I thought they were trick questions. If you'd asked me as a young teenager or older teenager, do you believe in God? Yes. Do you believe in the Trinity? Yes. Do you believe Jesus is God the Son? Yes. Do you believe Jesus died for the sins of the world? Yes. If you said, how do you go to heaven? I'd like, I don't know. Did I know God? I didn't. I knew about God. I thought I knew some facts about God. If you'd asked me, I'd say yes to all those. But I didn't know God. And that's true for many of us today. We say, oh, I know God. And it's like, if you haven't eaten the pie, you don't know apple pie. You know, the Psalms say, taste and see that the Lord is good. That thought that it's not somebody else's experience. I've eaten. I've tasted. I know what that's like. This is the kind of knowledge Paul's talking about. Personal. That was funny, wasn't it? Yes. It's personal knowledge. No one can take that knowledge away from you. You know it. You know it intimately, personally, and that's Paul's prayer. It's that kind of knowing he's talking about. This is interesting too, isn't it? Um, do you remember our fall in the Garden of Eden was the pursuit of what? Knowledge. Right? Because it's the tree of knowledge. The temptation Satan puts to them is, guys, God's holding out knowledge from you. And if you'll eat this fruit, you will know things in a way you don't know things now. And so they take the fruit and they eat and they know things that they didn't know before. Is that a good thing? That wasn't a good thing. Because now they know their own souls are darkened. Now they know God's holy and they're not. Now they're like the people in Ephesians 4. They now have a darkened spiritual life. The temptation was for knowledge, but it wasn't gaining knowledge or the right knowledge that God wanted to give them. It was, it was knowledge through death. Now isn't it interesting, for Christians today, Jesus becomes the tree of not just life, which he is, but Jesus becomes the tree of knowledge. So for Christians, and I don't, I don't mean this in an academic way, though it could include academics. <clears throat> it's not merely intellectual. 
Christians should know things, the most important things in life, because they know Christ. And Christ, this is from Colossians 2, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you want wisdom and knowledge? You get Christ. If you get Christ, you've got wisdom and knowledge. John 17.3, one of my favorite verses from the Scripture, this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus whom you've sent. See, God wants to give us knowledge. Our ancestors pursued the wrong kind of knowledge the wrong way. Today, God is giving His children personal, intimate knowledge of the things that count most, and that's the knowledge of Him and the things He's given us. So Paul's prayer for them is that we may know, and that we may know some very important things. So with that, let's look at the things he wants us to know. Look at verse 18. Paul prays there, uh, I pray that you may know that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope, excuse me, the hope to which he has called you. Uh, We had friends that uh, lived in the country in the past, and they had sheep and uh, other animals, but they had sheep, and so they had a sheep dog. It was a big white dog, a guard dog, I can't remember the breed name, big white dog. I said, wow, Jim, nice dog, Uh, what's the name? And he says, well, her name is Hope. And I said, well, why'd you name her Hope? And he says, because I hope she works out. True story. Uh, she didn't. Uh, I kid you not. You looked at this flock of sheep. The ears were bent and broken. The tails were bro- literally broken. That was Hope's work. She got a little aggressive in her shepherding. She didn't work out. When we say Hope, usually we're using Hope in that sense. I hope something happens. I hope this. I hope that. That's not what we're saying here. Biblically, the thought of hope here is it's a certainty. It simply has not occurred yet. It's a certain thing. It just hasn't occurred in space and time yet. So Paul says, I want you to know what is the certain outcome of your faith. I want you to know the certainty of what you're heading to. I want you to know what is the golden rainbow at the end of your life and that it's absolutely yours. You just haven't possessed it fully yet. And that's back to verses 1 through 14. So guys, when Paul says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, and you say, how does that help me today? It's like, well, it, it might not. Right? It's true. It's, it's ours. If you're an heir of your parents, and you possess legally what, what they own, but it's not yours to control yet, we don't get this till we get to heaven. We don't experience this till we get to heaven. We're blessed, we're in Christ now, but most of that you don't feel now, you don't see the good of it yet. Or he says, uh, you're adopted as God's children. You know, your your experience of knowing God as your Father, it ebbs and flows, doesn't it? Sometimes you might feel like, I feel so close to my Father. And other times you feel like, I'm not even sure I'm saved. But in the future, you'll know this delightful reciprocal relationship with your Father in all its fullness and it'll never change. That's your future, Paul says. You'll be in perfect conformity to the image of Christ. Gals, I know you heard a talk yesterday by Johnny Erickson Tata. Now, I thought this was interesting. Here's a well-known Christian woman, paralyzed from teen years on, lived almost all her adult life in a wheelchair. And what does she say when she's contemplating heaven and the fullness of her redemption? Does she say, man, I can't wait to walk? Does she say, man, I can't wait to get a body back that works right? You know what she says? She says, I can't wait to be free of my sinful nature. That's profound, isn't it? 
I can't wait to be free from the sin that's part of my makeup and it's here all the time. That's profound. That's where we're heading. You and I are going to be everything we should be, nothing that we shouldn't be. That's your future. That's what's coming. And we are God's heirs with Christ. You know, we don't even know what this looks like. What does it mean that we rule and reign with Christ forever? I, I don't know what that looks like, but that's your future. Somebody with faith in Christ and is God's child, that's your future. So that's the hope. If I know I've got that gold at the end of the rainbow, I can put up with some things in life now, can't I? My experience now is adjusted or it's mitigated by what I know I get in the future. You athletes will train, it's hard work, it's painful, but they're doing it, they're doing it for a glorious end, this competition or, or winning or victory. That's what this is like for us. We don't possess it yet, but we will. And Paul says, I want you to know what's coming. If you know what's coming, you'll live life here differently. The second thing he says is this, that you may know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Now Paul says first, I want you guys to know what you... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> I want you to know what you get. I want you to know what God is giving you. That's the first thing. Now this thing is the opposite. And I hope this strikes you and you're thinking, what does he mean here? Because this is in the opposite direction. This isn't what you get. This is what God gets. Paul says, I want you to know what God gets in you. So he says, that you may know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul says, I want you to know how delighted God is in His future with you. And he calls us here glorious. That God the Father is looking forward to the day when we are all home with Him and the Son and the family is gathered and He is delighting in us. So first Paul says, what your hope, what you get, but now he says it's not what you get, it's what God gets because He gets you. Now this is mind-blowing, right? We want you to know what God gets because He gets you. Because His kids are all home. Because they're everything that they should be. Nothing that they shouldn't be. Because sin's not an issue. There's nothing that keeps us from free and perfect fellowship. So the second thing Paul prays is, it's not what you get, it's what God gets. I want you to know what God gets when He gets us. He considers it glorious, delightful. Song of Songs says this two times, I am my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine. It's reciprocal. That's exactly what Paul's saying here. Or how about this from Zephaniah 3.17? Do you guys have this one memorized, Zephaniah 3.17? Do we know where Zephaniah is? Zephaniah 3.17. Now this is descriptive about what God would do for Israel, but certainly the idea is absolutely consistent with what Paul's talking about here. This is a mind-blowing verse too. So Zephaniah says, The Lord, Yahweh, your God, is in your midst. He's right there in the middle of you. And this is like all the saints in heaven home with the Father. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you, all anxiety gone. 
All worry gone. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Is that wild? Yahweh, the Creator of the universe, the power above all powers, will sing over you His covenant people. God in your midst delights in you. That's what we're heading to. If you guys ever, uh, I don't know what this looked like for you at home or for me, but I know what it looked like for me. Uh, Dad's gone all day. Let's say he's gone to work and the kids are at home. And uh, one of the kids at my house or my mom would say, Dad's home. 5.30 or 6 whenever he got back, right? And if it's a good relationship, and I know all relationships with parents are not good, okay, so humor me. Uh, if, if there's a good relationship there, Dad comes in, the kids are with Dad, and Dad's with the kids, and we're rejoicing. And the picture maybe of a dad picking up his little one, putting him or her on his shoulders, playing with them, rolling with them. That's the thought here. And that's what you see. Paul is saying, I want you to know how delighted the Father is with the thought of His future with us, His children. That's wild. So he says, I want you to know what you get, and I want you to know what God gets, and how highly God values us, his children. And think about this, humor me for just a moment here. If God values his children this way, do you think we should do the same thing? If God thinks about my brothers and sisters in the faith like this now, what should my attitude towards brothers and sisters in the faith be? If God calls His church glorious, and He sees all things as they are, shouldn't we? Now I know, guys. I know the church. Our church, the church. We are not what we should be. But God looks at us through Christ and He says, you guys are going to be everything I want. The church, glorious in God's eyes. We should be therefore very careful that we treat Christ's church and the Father's children with care and honor because of the value God has placed on us, on our brothers and sisters in the faith. And guys, we live in a time in which people diss the church right and left. Christians do. We live in a time where Christians do not value brothers and sisters in the faith. In fact, if you remember, as we go towards the time of the end, it says the love of many will grow cold. And the church is not unaffected by this. If God the Father delights in His children to this degree, should we not handle our relationships with brothers and sisters in the faith with great care and respect and honor because of the honor our Father does? And last, as we wind down, verse 19, the third thing Paul wants them to know. Sorry, I'm behind. I forget these things. Is that it? Sorry. Those were good slides, by the way. He says in verse 19, Last thing, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. You and I often feel powerless in the practical things of life. I sometimes feel powerless over my own sin. I'm doing it again. Or I may want to change something in my life and I just feel like I, I want to change. You know, Romans 7, I, I want to change, but I just feel like I keep doing the same thing. right? Or I may see pain or suffering in my wife or my child or my parent or my friend, my brother, sister in the faith, and I want to do something. And I have no power to do anything. Now, I can pray. I'm not minimizing that. But you know, I don't have a magic wand. The power that Paul says he wants us to be aware of is not a magic wand that we, 
we create our own re reality, right? It's not that kind. Paul says this is the power of God that's at work in you and through you, and it's primarily related to our redemption. We're not going to develop this a lot this morning because we will next time in Ephesians 2. But what you'll see is this. And by the way, the last of those verses, they all describe uh, verse 19. God's great might, the power He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, uh, seated Him at His right hand, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, above every name that's named. Uh, he's put all things under His feet and given Him His head over all things. Those verses are just there to describe the power of God in us and through us. Those are there to tell you what the power is like. So Paul says, I want you to know what the power of God at work in your life is like. And he says this, he says it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And we talk as a phrase about resurrection power, it's trite, it's churchy, and it's almost meaningless. The greatest foe everybody on earth has ever had is death. Guys, you can't do anything about death. You're going to die. I'm going to die. Right? Unless the rapture, and I'm praying for the rapture, not to escape because I'm ready. But short of that, you and I are going to die, so that's not really the issue. Where are we going? Who do we belong to? Paul says it's, this, it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, and not just from the dead, right? What happened to Lazarus after he was raised from the dead? He died. Death was not defeated at that point. Everybody that Jesus raised, they died again. Jesus is raised from the dead, and then what does it say? By the way, oh, and then he's raised up to heaven. And then he's raised above every spiritual power and entity in the universe. And Paul says, that's the power of God at work in you. And this is what you'll see in spades in Ephesians 2. That that's the power God's exercise in raising us from death to life. So that's the kind of power Paul wants us to know. So Paul says, I want you to know some things. What's waiting for you? At the end of this all, what's waiting for you? It's glorious beyond compare. God values us in profound ways. We should value each other. And God's power at work in us is mind-numbing. So, just thinking of this as a kind of pattern. It's not that we pray this way all the time. You don't have to. But as a pattern for prayer, pray as a way of life and pray for our brothers and sisters in the faith. Pray regularly for others. Give thanks for what God has already done and the promises He has already guaranteed He will fulfill. Pray with thanksgiving. Rejoice that no power in heaven and earth can remove us from God's care or prevent His goodwill in our glorious transformation and our future with Him forever. God's power at work in us. And then just stop with this question. Go home tonight when you go to sleep. If God shows up tonight in your dreams and says, Son or daughter, what, what would you like? What do you want? What would you say? Could be anything, right? But it could be something like Paul prayed here. It could be something like Solomon prayed too. What are the greatest needs? Is that what I'm thinking about? Is that what I'm praying about? Lord, thanks for your servant Paul and just the depth and the breadth of his personal knowledge from you, Lord, much of that through suffering. Lord, help us to embrace knowledge in you. God, give us just open ears, circumcised hearts. Help us to be in your word constantly to hear you, to, to know these truths. God, help us to be regularly before you just in prayer to give you thanks, to praise you for who and what you are, for what you've done for us, for what you're doing for us, for what you've promised. Father, help us to value our brothers and sisters in the faith as fully as you do. 
Thanks for the hope that is certain in our future union with you because and through Jesus in his name. Amen.